Before we jump into today's show, we want to tell you about a new podcast from the Aspen Institute called The Bridge. It features conversations among women of different generations about career, family, and politics. In the premiere episode, journalists Courtney Martin and Pat Mitchell talk with host Peggy Clark. Clark is the Director of Global Health and Development for the Aspen Institute. Find the episode by searching The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on iTunes. Check it out. We think you'll like it. Now, here's today's show. Meditation is absolutely essential now because we're living in an epidemic of trauma and toxic stress. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Bob Roth has taught Transcendental Meditation for more than three decades. The charity he runs, the David Lynch Foundation, brings meditation to underserved youth, veterans, and survivors of domestic violence. In today's episode, he explains the science behind meditation and why it works. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Studies reveal physical and mental benefits of meditation, including less pain, better immune function, and reduced anxiety. So how does it work? During mindfulness practices like meditation, the brain changes. Roth says you can see gray matter growing in the part of the brain associated with positive well-being. So you're developing the brain's ability to be positive. You can take control over your emotions, your moods, through this mindfulness type of, one of these mindfulness techniques. In this discussion from the Aspen Ideas Festival, he explains different mindfulness techniques and how to apply them to everyday life. He's interviewed by Perry Peltz. She's a documentary filmmaker and public health advocate. I want to read something that I found online about what it is alleged that meditation can do for you. And I'm going to read this. Meditation can help with stress, improve cognition, improve physical and mental health, reduce anxiety, depression, provide a heightened sense of well-being, bring greater happiness, emotional self-control, improve sleep. That is a lot of things. And being the skeptic that I tend to be, I didn't actually buy into a lot of this. Before we get, though, to the science of meditation, it's, I think, important for us to even to understand what meditation is. So, Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is we're actually even talking about? How many people here practice, have, have tried some form of meditation? Okay, no, actually, wow. this is a question. Uh, this is a question. How many people here eat healthy? How many of you eat healthy on a pretty regular basis? How many of you exercise? How many of you exercise what on a pretty regular group is this? basis? <laughs> now, I just said, how many of you have meditated? Yeah. Now, how many of you meditate on a regular basis? Yeah, that's what this is a talk about. Because we eat well on a regular basis, we exercise well on a regular basis, we dabble on the meditation, and it turns out that meditation is absolutely essential now because we live in an epidemic, to answer your question, we're living in an epidemic of trauma and toxic stress. And that cuts across all, all demographics. And the science, the understanding of the impact of stress on our life, I mean, there's books and books we all, we all know. And particularly, I'm working with adolescents. And we just had a meeting earlier today talking about the adolescent brain 
and how it's being sculpted and right now it's being sculpted for an adult brain that is chronically fatigued, chronically fearful, chronically anxious and that's informing what their lives are going to be like. So the problem of stress is huge. The second reason of three is that modern medicine has no magic pill to either prevent stress or cure it. I mean, we can we mask it with six glasses of wine or five cups of espresso before six in the morning, or we can um, manage it with Ambien and Xanax and these different things. We can manage it, but nothing curative. And why meditation now? One answer, science. Science. I've been at this for 45 years, teaching 45 years. And when I look over, over time, um, you know, there's been research on mindfulness and transcendental meditation, been around 10 years or so, but suddenly it's just coming to the surface. It's no, the word meditation, wasn't it like, when I was younger as a, as a TM teacher, someone would ask my parents, so what does your son Bobby do? And they go, meditation. <laughs> what? <laughs> but now it's a different story. We're doing programs in all the big banks and professional athletic teams and schools and VA hospitals and it's science. So it's science. Um, Bob, I'm curious and I don't know if sometimes it's like when you learn a new word and all of a sudden you see the new word all over the place, but I feel like there's so much discussion now about meditation. Why now? Well, it's an interesting thing. For, for the longest time, you know, longest time, as long as I remember, the word meditation, maybe 15, 10 years ago, first of all, science really didn't take it seriously. And if they said anything about it, it was all lumped into the word meditation. It didn't really matter what you did. Oh, yes, you meditate. Well, you can jog or you meditate and you count your, you know, your breath or you, I meditate when I cook or I meditate when I listen to music or I do TM meditation or mind. It was all sort of didn't matter what you did. 15, 20 minutes or two minutes, that was just, the significance was you just broke, you take, took a break, break in the action. Then about five, seven years ago, brain research started showing up because we know that every experience that we have changes the brain in a distinct way. So if we listen to heavy metal music or we listen to electronic music or we listen to Beethoven or if we're watching Sorry, the Warriors lose the, lose the seventh game, which was very hard on me after 47 years of meditating, still hard on me. <laughs> um, that, that changes the brain in a different, in case you didn't know it, that was a reference to a basketball team. Um, so it changes the brain in a distinct way. And so it turns out that there are three distinct types of meditation. And they didn't know that before. That means science-based, evidence-based. This is a lot of junk out there. The first is called focused attention. And focused attention is your basic classical uh, Zen meditation. It's clear your mind of thoughts. You know, you're at the end of a yoga class and they say, okay, now you're gonna meditate. You're gonna clear your mind. Anybody ever tried that? I, I, yeah, successful? Somebody... Yeah, that's good. Because when I was told to do that, I thought, okay, and then I'll create peace in the Middle East. You know, I have a very busy mind, type A mind. But it's a concentration, it's a focused meditation, and that creates what's called gamma brain waves. Gamma is 20 to 50 cycles per second. It's often in this part, the left frontal lobe, 
And um, Vipassana meditation is that, that sort where you're just, you're focused. It's, it can be on your breath. It can be a point in your body. It can be on an idea. I'm going to be loving, loving kindness. So it's a concentration. Second type is called open monitoring. And open monitoring is um, a lot of mindfulness. And I should say that I've been trained in all these, practice all these. I teach transcendental meditation. It's the one that I've practiced and taught the longest, but I, I'm uh, not a siloing person. So open monitoring means a non-judgmental observation of thoughts, of breath, of moods, of feelings. It's to, become, to sort of step back. And that creates theta brainwaves. And theta brainwaves, five to seven cycles per second. And that is a sort of an inner wakefulness, just a, a sort of attention to detail. It's, it's not quiet as much as engaged. And then the third is called self-transcending. And that is, transcend, tr includes transcendental meditation. And that's neither concentrating, like if you have waves, you know, trying to clear the mind of thought. It's not just observing your thoughts. It's actually experiencing the thought process at quieter and more settled and calmer levels of the mind. And when that happens, your body gets a deep rest. But the main thing there is that creates alpha one. And that's eight to 10 cycles per second. And that is a state of deep inner wakefulness. So, oh, do you that want was to, a pause. That was a pause, yeah. you want to, okay, great. Because when you start talking about alpha waves and gamma waves, I think you're already moving this, into the science here. Yes, but then I'll dial no, it back. No, that's okay, good, good, because yeah. that's a good segue yeah. for me. Um, when you talk about the science, which is really what we're here about this evening, about the science of meditation, Bob, in all seriousness, when you look at this list of things that I find about what meditation can do for you, reducing anxiety, depression, increasing well-being, sleep, all of these things that is claimed that it does, what is the science? How do you know that, in fact, these things are actually happening? It's a mental technique that impacts the brain, and the brain impacts the body, and the brain impacts the mind. So anxiety, depression, insomnia, lots of that is, okay, so there's, I'm going to make this simple for me and you. There's two key areas of the brain we're going to talk about. One is the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobes. You've heard that prefrontal Yeah, that's the one yeah. that doesn't come in until you're 25. Those no, of you who have teenage yeah, children. Yeah. No, <laughs> it starts at 12. It doesn't lock in until you're 25. Right, yeah. exactly. So that is about, it's the size of your fist. It's behind your forehead. And that is um, judgment. Is this, you know all this, or can I go through this? Okay, judgment, planning, decision-making sense of self, ethical reasoning, innovative thinking, creativity. It's the, they call it the CEO of the brain because all the other information, information comes into the brain and here's the CEO which decides and discriminates and, and, and judges. Then there's another part of the brain which is part of the limbic system which would just say is the amygdala and that's the fear center and that is fight or flight. You've all heard that term, fight or flight. Now, when everything is in balance, the prefrontal cortex is on board and it's discriminating and it's deciding and it's going along. And when you're about to be chased by a tiger or you're in Fallujah, then the amygdala kicks in. 
and it gets hyper-aroused, and then what happens is the energy that was going to here to sort of thinking in a clear, rational way, that shuts down, the prefrontal cortex shuts down, and now the amygdala takes over, and now I fight, or I, f or I flee, or when it's really extreme, then I freeze. That's fine if you're in the savanna, or if you are on a battlefield, but it's not fine if this tells me where I am, if you're stuck in the FDR and you really need to be someplace and you are really getting upset because this has been going on day after day and you know how could they keep doing so much construction on the FDR during a weekday and so the FDR uh, for those of yes. you not from New York City so is a roadway in New York City that's the 405 often, right. <laughs> yeah, in LA. often right. very congested so What's happening is modern life with so, with so much um, stress, so much stress and chronic stress that we've lost the ability to sleep, we've lost the ability to um, have about the brain and to be balanced. What happens is the amygdala kicks in and it's hyper aroused and this shuts down and now I am anxious all the time and my body is secreting something called cortisol. You've heard of that cortisol? Hormone, stress hormone. In proper balance, it's great. We need it. But what happens is the adrenal glands which sit on the, on the kidneys start pumping out a lot of cortisol and then my anxiety becomes more anxious, becomes more anxious, becomes more anxious, becomes a vicious cycle and then you have people who have panic attacks. And what's going on in all of this is the frontal lobes the clear thinking, the planning, the judgment, the decision making goes offline and now I'm overreacting to everything. Is that clear? And that becomes a chronic feature of life and then I can't sleep and then when I can't sleep it gets worse because sleep, if new research on sleep shows that there's a lot of activity going on in the brain when we're sleeping and these toxins are being purified and it's absolutely essential. I later on talk about work with kids, but I'll well, stop. I, you know, when you're talking about brain changes, I think one of the things that's interesting is that there actually are studies that show differences and changes on MRI yeah. when people are meditating. I was wondering if maybe you could just talk about well, that. Well, one of the a areas that on MRI and EEG, the MRI, particularly for meditations, this part of your of your brain, the frontal lobe on the left, is associated with positive feelings of positive well-being. And there are mindfulness practices where you are culturing that positivity, well-being. And you can actually see the growth of gray matter in that part of the brain. So you're developing the brain's ability to be positive. You can take control over your emotions, your moods, through this mindfulness type of one of these mindfulness techniques. First of all, I should say mindfulness is many, many, many techniques. It's not just one. There's mindfulness eating and mindfulness walking and mindfulness breathing and mindfulness hatha yoga. So there's many, many different approaches. But you can see that on the um, fMRI. You can also see the amygdala, which is the fear center through certain mindfulness approaches, calming down during, during mindfulness meditations. And then the other area I'm talking about is the electrical activity in the brain. And that you can see with transcendental meditation you can see the connections between the neural pathways between the front of the brain and the back of the brain and the whole brain starts to communicate and, and connect with each other, all the different parts.
You know, when Bob and I initially had this conversation about the science of meditation, my first thought was, well, these are probably some really small studies, probably at some really small places. And in fact, it's not. The NIH has funded, what, more than $26 million just to study transcendental on meditation? On high blood pressure, just on high blood pressure. And it found that American Heart Association came out two years ago and said that transcendental meditation was the most effective tool for reducing high blood pressure in many regards as effective as antihypertensive medication with no uh, hazardous, no negative side effects. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's episode features transcendental meditation teacher Bob Roth and documentary filmmaker Perry Peltz. Roth also runs the David Lynch Foundation. It brings meditation to people suffering from trauma and toxic stress, like survivors of domestic violence. Peltz continues the conversation. So what are the most exciting areas, Bob, right now that are, that you're, are, that are being researched and that you're seeing actual changes and improvements? I know that you're working with women who have been uh, victims of domestic abuse. You're working with uh, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. So you're working with a lot of people who have had trauma. What is it that's most interesting and exciting to you right now? It's an interesting thing because the epidemic of trauma, and trauma doesn't have to be just a bomb went off in, you know, a roadside bomb in Fallujah. We all, first responders um, experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, caretakers, if you have someone in your family who has post-traumatic stress or is a veteran, it's contagious. And again, there's the, we're working with the VA, the Department of Defense just gave several two and a half million dollars for a big study on the effects of transcendental meditation on post-traumatic stress, as well as on traumatic brain injury. And we're doing research at um, the VA hospital in uh, San Diego and a, in Augusta, Georgia at a VA hospital there on traumatic brain injury. And what they're finding is number one, one of the first things that happens when they learn TM is they start sleeping for the first time because this meditation gives the body like that a state of rest in many regards, well, two to three times deeper than just sitting with your eyes closed and in some regards deeper than sleep. And that alone, it's an amazing experience for me to teach a veteran who hasn't literally, can you imagine, slept for months, and then they, they learn the meditation, and they sleep 18 hours a night for three or four nights in a row. So there's a lot, of, a lot of research in that area. The research, the most mainstream research that's going on is with the heart disease. But we're starting to work now, um, I'm in discussions with Mount Sinai Hospital about the effects of TM on pre-onset Alzheimer's, working with Michael J. Fox, who I taught to meditate on the effect of TM on um, Parkinson's. Uh, he doesn't mind I tell this story. When he sits, when he does TM, he sits to meditate like that. All the tremors stop. Just, it, I'd never seen anything like that. And then it's done for 20 minutes and then That's incredible. Yeah, and he runs a big foundation. We're gonna, he has to do research on it. And it lasts, that calm lasts for like, 10 minutes or 20 minutes after, and sometimes we'll just sit there and he'll just look at his hand. Do you have a thesis about why that might be? It's, uh, someone here is an expert in Parkinson's, but it's a, it's a neurochemical, uh -huh. and I have no idea. It's even when I talk to other um, people in the field of Parkinson's, they don't know, but this is not isolated. It's incredible. 
That really is. All right, I'm going to give Bob a break from my questions. Do you want to show anything before we go to yeah. the questions? Or you, what, which yeah. one would you like, I'd like to show? I'd like to show, for me, one of the most satisfying I've, been I've taught thousands of people to meditate. Can I just a little background on myself? Yeah, of course okay. you may. So, Actually, let me ask you the question. Bob, can you tell us a little bit about how... Is, it, is this work that we know each other so well? <laughs> One of my questions was, Bob, can you tell us a little so, bit yeah, about yourself? I want to talk about, because I'm like the least, I wanted to say this, I'm like the least typical, if you think of a meditation teacher, I'm like the least likely meditation teacher. I'm like a really skeptical person. I'm a cynic about a lot of stuff. I'm not into woo-woo. I'm not into new age stuff. I, you know, I'm just like a regular guy. And I, just briefly, so I grew up in a very political family in the 1950s and 19, this is how I'm, why I'm running the foundation. I'm explaining why I'm dedicated myself to doing and this And the name foundation. of the foundation is the David Lynch David Lynch, Lynch Foundation, foundation. yes. And so I was like, you know, I grew up in a very political family in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1950s and early 60s. And my family was so political, and some of you will relate to this, that I knew that I was a Democrat before I knew I was Jewish. <laughs> I, some of you can relate. I mean, we just, we just, that was, we just talked politics. And I was the Jewish kid in the family that wanted to, in those days, you know, change the world. And so I worked for Bobby Kennedy when I was a senior in high school, and I saw him three day in San Francisco three days before he was assassinated, and that was a huge blow to me. And I went to UC Berkeley in 1968, and I wasn't a druggie, and I wasn't a hippie, and I wanted to change the world, and it was so insane, and politics was so abusive that I lost my passion for politics, and I'm getting to the answer. Is this too much? No, no, you're okay. good. Okay, all right. Um, I lost my passion for politics. I thought, okay, education. I really wanted to work with underserved kids. So I was in the educational curriculum and a friend of mine stressed out of my mind because I had tanks parked outside my door and I was working full time and going to school full time. And the guy said, you should learn transcendental meditation. And my first response was, not on your life. I have enough issues with my own religion because I thought it was what everybody thinks. And he said, no, it's not, and it's, you don't have to believe in anything, and it's restful. And I learned it, and one of my first thoughts after learning to meditate was, I want to teach this to inner city school kids. That was 1969. So I became a teacher in 1972, and I went back to the Bay Area, and I taught it at San Quentin Prison, and I taught men on death row and guards, and I taught it in, if you know San Francisco, in the... Um, Mission District and, and Hunters Point, and then ten, and I just taught it forever, and then 10 years ago, David Lynch and I got together, started a foundation to bring this to at-risk kids, and then it went to veterans and now women and children. I had a meeting with a woman from the UN Women and was talking because the problem of traumatic stress in developing countries is and so she asked me a question. She said, what, what would you like to do, David Lynch Foundation, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to teach a million women to meditate in the next 10 years in Africa. And she said, no one has ever said this to me. You're thinking too small. <laughs> she said, what are you talking about here? It's not buildings. It's not medicines. It's not technologies. It's just a whisper teaching a person to meditate. She said, come back to me when um, you have a plan to teach 100 million people to meditate. Wow. And it just made me realize, is it epidemic? 
and it's not going to go away if we're hoping it's just going to go away, turn a blind eye. It's that, that's what's fueling terrorism. That's what's fueling violence in our cities. That's what's fueling domestic abuse, ultimately. We need to make changes in education and, and health care, but we also have to address that underlying um, epidemic. I want to get to people's questions. Yes. As the media, I feel, has paid a lot more attention to meditation and describing it in articles the last few years, I've given, especially the last year or so, a lot of thought to what is really the difference between that and prayer if you're a religious person. And I don't mean that flippantly. No, no, no. <laughs> no it's a so great if question. you could just talk about that. The difference between prayer and transcendental meditation is prayer is content-based. It's more of, it's, a, it's an emotional and a mental uh, desire, or wish, or um, communication. And transcendental meditation is much more physiological. I work, I teach a lot of um, Catholic priests and nuns, and most of the people who learn TM, at least in America, are Christ, Judeo-Christian tradition. It just, I look at it as a physiological thing. It gets rid of stress so that when I pray or, or when I do anything, I'm more present, I am more myself. So that, that's, there's no belief system involved with transcendental meditation. The other thing, I, I want to drive home this point. When I said in the beginning all meditations were lumped together and now we understand there's three basic types, my feeling has been that there's too much siloing. That, oh, I do mindfulness so I don't have to do this, or I do that and mind, and I think that's so wrong. I think we have to look at it. The key word for me is evidence-based. If there's data that shows that something works, then we should investigate it because it's a big war out there with stress. And so I'm, I'm in favor of when we go into a school that we give the children a toolbox of how to handle stresses, and not just handle stress, but wake up their brain, strengthen the frontal lobes. Then in a toolbox, there's more than one tool. And so prayer is something that will only be enhanced by, just like exercise, prayer is enhanced by being healthy. I work at a school, first through 12th grade, with kids um, who have learning disabilities, a lot of social and emotional delays. Um, I think of it as trauma associated with um, those delays and struggles. And I just started a class um, through Mindful Schools. Is there anything else that you would suggest in terms of training or areas to look into and research to augment um, what I've started with the Mindful Schools program? I would, Mindful Schools, be sure, and it, I know that organization it is data-driven, and take a look at the work we're doing. We call it Quiet Time, the David Lynch Foundation. It, what it does is it provides um, TM instruction, and it's done for 15 minutes at the beginning of the school day and 15 minutes at the end of the school day. Um, the whole school is quiet, which is an, a remarkable thing. And uh, the, the principal, everybody is quiet. And they, they don't all have to meditate. They can do um, silent sustained reading or they can do um, even nap. But by, within six months, 90% of the kids are wanting to meditate. That is a complementary program to what mindful school is. The, again, what Transcendental Meditation does, it's a great preparation. It's, the focus is on learning readiness. So the kid comes to school, and then he, who knows what he or she has eaten? Who knows what's gone on at home? And now they're supposed to study algebra. 
and so the whole the whole school begins with a few minutes of of meditation and if there's time I want to tell you a very moving story about that. All right, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. You're listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's episode, The Science of Meditation, features moderator Perry Peltz and longtime meditation teacher Bob Roth. Another episode we recommend is A Bright Future for Long-Term Coupling. Match.com's chief scientific advisor, Helen Fisher, explains the science behind why humans fall in love and pair up. Find it on iTunes by searching Aspen Ideas to Go. Now, back to the conversation. You've been talking not about a general meditative practice, but about a specific one, being TM. And I was wondering if you could break down to us what distinguishes or what distinctive characteristics TM has versus other meditative practices and why those make it more effective? Um, I, hoped I, wasn't, I, I hoped I wasn't just talking only about TM because um, I mentioned the, the point about, because um, it's very important to me that I'm, I'm not just one, that's my expertise, I teach it, but I've learned all these other ones. But there's an enormous amount of research on mindfulness and it's a, it can be a wonderful coping tool. For example, in mindfulness practices, if a person is very anxious and, and uh, a student or a, a, then the mindfulness approach actually you can see it calm the amygdala. Transcendental meditation doesn't do that. Transcendental meditation is done before that anxiety kicks in and it makes the frontal lobes stronger and less, the amygdala less likely to sort of become hyper aroused. But then having that tool for calming the amygdala is also important. So I think it's like comparing sit-ups and push-ups. You know, they have different purposes and different outcomes. Again, that example, uh, you're on a little, little boat on the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and all of a sudden you get these giant 30-foot high waves, and you could think the whole ocean is an upheaval. And if you can do a cross-section of the ocean, you realize that there's 30-foot high waves, but the ocean is a mile deep and at the depth of the ocean it's silent and the surface of the ocean is choppy and turbulent and the depth of the ocean is silent and the it's analogous to our mind the surface of our mind i like to call it the gotta 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 mind i got to do this and i got to do that and i got to call him and i got to call her and i got to make a list and i got to find the list and i got to make a new list then i got to slow down then i got to get going and i got to get to sleep and i got anybody have that so that yeah that's that. Now, how do we deal with that? And that's where meditation comes in. And there are three basic approaches to meditation, all valid. And uh, a meditation, a, a concentration form of med actually the word meditation just means thinking. So a, a concentration form of meditation is concentrating the mind on a particular focus like my breath. And every time I, I focus, and that, as I said, creates the gamma brain waves. And that is a fabulous cognitive training for concentration. And then the second was the mindfulness or open monitoring. And that's observing thoughts. But it's not just observing thoughts. There's body scans where you start from the top of your head and you just observe experiences all the way down. And that, but that's a dispassionate ob observation. And that, among other things, is a phenomenal coping tool which I have used. Because if in the middle of the day things get hot, then you can 
take two minutes. And then the third is just self-transcending, where you, we hypothesize that every human being right now, right now, it's just a hypothesis, every human being has a level of the mind deep within which is already quiet and silent. That's just a hypothesis. And Transcendental Meditation provides access to that. I feel that all three skill sets are essential for dealing with life in 2016. So I'm not, I, I know more about TM and, and I was invited to sort of speak about all the science, but I'm a big fan of anything that's evidence-based. I'm not a fan of people who just jumping on the bandwagon and they got some gadget and there's no evidence to show that it works. Not a fan of that. That's just, we're a nonprofit organization. I, 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 I don't like that so much. But if there's science and it's repeated and it's published in peer-reviewed journals four or five times, not just once, it's not just anecdotal, that's something we have to really look at, okay? You know, I wanted to, to talk about some of the, the mechanics of what we're speaking about, because when you speak about the gotta, 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 gotta brain, I remember when I decided I was gonna learn how to meditate, and I went to a class that Bob was teaching. And the, one of the first things that came up is that this was going to be 20 minutes, you needed to do this 20 minutes twice a day, and I thought, well, this is a problem. <laughs> um, but then I thought, no problem, because I'll use that time to go through my lists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not joking. A multitasker <laughs> meditator. Right. And this is fine. It would be a nice, quiet moment to really get through those work. But we, we moved through that. It was, it was good. But Bob, talk a little bit about TM and what are some of the mechanics that are involved? How can somebody okay. do this? So there has been, for the longest time, the assumption that the mind, want, if, if you know different types of meditation, sorry over there, if you know different types of meditation, there's the assumption that the mind wanders aimlessly. It's the monkey mind and you have to corral it. You have to, you have to stop that. You have to create calm where there's no calm. And in transcendental meditation, there's another insight. And the insight is the mind is not wandering aimlessly. It's not just mm -hmm. The mind is, natural tendency of the mind is to be drawn towards something more satisfying. You're sitting in a room and you're listening to some really wretched music. And in the other room, some unbelievable music comes on. Where does your mind naturally, where does it get drawn to? It gets drawn to that more charming music. You're at a cocktail party. I'm sure this has never happened to you. You're stuck in a corner in a dreadful conversation. And there's no escape and you're dying inside. And five feet over here, there's interesting people with an interesting conversation, maybe telling a joke. And you've got eye contact here, but you are about to laugh. And the, the mind is going, is just drawn to that which is more satisfying. Or as I said before, you go on, you go on vacation, you bring two books, and one is terrible, and one is fantastic, and the terrible one you can't read, and the fantastic one, hours go by. So the mind is drawn to something more satisfying in our hypothesis. And what I love about genuine meditation is no belief. You can be 100% skeptical. We, in this hypothesis, this quiet level of the mind is a very satisfying experience. It's my own inner nature. And in transcendental meditation, you receive what's called as a mantra or a word or a sound that has no meaning, because if it had a meaning, you're stuck up there trying to figure out what that is, and you're taught how to use it 
to effortlessly access that calm. And I can teach a 10-year-old child who has ADD who couldn't close her or his eyes for 10 seconds. And it, the meditation takes about an hour a day over four days, and that child is 10 minutes twice a day and loving it. It's not a, an acquired skill. It's we're hardwired for it. I am a professional coach, and I've had the incredible honor to work with a couple of people who are in special forces for a number of years, and they have post-traumatic distress uh, and have trouble sleeping, and when they, I wanted to get kind of a, give you an example, and maybe you could tell me a little more about the mechanisms of how transcendental meditation helps them. Uh, but when this one fellow closes his eyes to try to sleep, he's back in the, in the in the war zone and bullets are coming at him. So he opens his eyes and wakes up in order, it's, it's like a reaction, a survival reaction. So how does transcendental meditation help, help a person? First of all, we teach every veteran for free. Any veteran who comes to the foundation who wants to learn to meditate, they, they learn for free. And actually we do programs in banks and we charge extra and they say, where's that money going? And I said, it's going to pay veterans so that they can learn for free. And the guy says, well, what if I don't want to pay the extra? Then I say, then I'm not teaching you. And they pay and they like it and the veterans, so. It's a nice start to the relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works, no, they like it. You know, it's a nonprofit. When a, when a person comes who has severe trauma and there we are, have a whole team of teachers who are trained to work with them, they don't start with 20 minutes. They, they could start with 30 seconds, they, and then it could build up. And the same, actually, I work with nonverbal children on the spectrum who can't sit with their eyes closed, or people with schizophrenia or even bipolar. You build up the time, so you build up the time. And we have specially trained people, and it's safe, and um, it really works. I mean, the, the Iraq, I mean, the, the Wounded Warrior Project just funded, we just taught about three or 400 veterans, and the results that are coming in from that study is just extraordinary. I'd like to expand this to all the veterans. I mean, we, we should. Teach, yeah, I, I teach all the veterans we teach for free because not that many people know about it, and if we have more funds come in, then it all goes to the veterans and their families, because the veterans can't, it's not an yeah. isolation. It's the children, it's the spouse, it's the parents. Yes, in the back. I was wondering, um, you were talking about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Yeah. And I was wondering if the hippocampus had anything to do with it. Hippocampus, yeah. That's good question. That is really good. I have to just, I was traveling, you know, David Lynch, uh, uh, filmmaker, Twin Peaks and all that. So I was traveling and uh, some interesting films, you know, um, Blue Velvet, and so we were in Scotland or something like that, a little child got up and said, I've seen Blue Velvet four times, and David said, where's your parents? <laughs> yes, the hippocampus is involved with memory, and um, what happens with stress, too much stress, and the hippocampus is the one part of the brain that actually creates um, new brain cells. And that's really important, Keep neurogenesis, keeps creating new brain cells. And stress, particularly cortisol, when cortisol hits, when it's, hits the hippocampus, it, too much of it actually shrinks the hippocampus. 
And that's why stress, one reason why stress, when we have too much stress, our memory goes because that's your memory center. Stress also shrinks the um, prefrontal cortex and that's why <laughs> life happens. You know, just again, judgment, planning, decision making. But the hippocampus is very important, has a very important impact on stress and there's no research specifically on TM in the hippocampus, but there is research and also mindfulness on reducing cortisol levels. And so that has a healthy influence on, um, on the hippocampus and therefore memory. Thank you for that That's a great question. question. You know, that makes sense too, because if you're in the fight or flight mode, you probably don't want to be bogged down by a lot of memories, right? You no, and you're be... also not going, oh, there's a tiger chasing me. Well, let me just think of my options here. We should talk about, <laughs> we should look at it as bears since we're yeah, here in Aspen. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. Exactly. Bears. Yeah, and the garbage. Yeah, things. right, right, exactly. Okay, why don't we show the video? What do you okay, think? Okay, so let me lead into this. This is the last thing, and then we'll do a little meditation. I just, you know, maybe it's just my leftover 60s stuff, but I just find at-risk populations who don't get much of a break, um, it's very satisfying for me to be able to offer this. And this came up because a person in San Francisco who's a meditator said, I want to fund a research study at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation because when a person is diagnosed with AIDS, it creates unbelievable amounts of anxiety and then that lowers T-cell and it compromises the immune system. So this is. Uh, a video which is one of my favorite, and then we'll do, a, everybody will get to do their meditation. There's very few things as stressful as saying, you now have a life-threatening disease and probably it's gonna kill you. I was in rehab when I found out I was uh, HIV positive. I had both, hep C and HIV. And um, I thought my world was gonna crumble. I found out February 14th, 1997, that I was HIV positive. I was panicked. I didn't know which way to go. I was a benefits analyst for many, many years, and I worked at several health plans. I was in my place for 20 years. My landlady died. And then in a really aggressive judicial process, I found myself locked out of my place. I ended up out on the street after a few months because I exhausted my, my friend's couches. I came here in 1968. I was 11 years old from El Salvador. There was very few immigrants, so there was no such thing as English as second language class. So it forced me to learn English. I wanted to find out about the SAT tests. I asked my high school counselor. She said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, you, you being here is a fluke. That's what she told me. You know, I'm a Latina, you know, it's the early 70s. When I took the SAT test, I scored 1400, which is, I put me in the top one percentile of the nation. You could be really bright and still do stupid things. My husband sold drugs. He used drugs too, and then I used drugs. And after he died, I started really using more drugs, and which is how I got uh, HIV infected. When someone has a life-threatening illness, it triggers the fight or flight response, and the fight or flight response lowers immunity. And so there's a vicious circle that happens. When I found out that my T cells were around 300, and dropping, and there was not a lot that was being done to address it, I started to panic. 
it was tough living day to day with all the stress and not knowing what to do because we're not taught coping skills. Stress level goes up, which causes immune system to go down. Uh, so anything that the person can do that interrupts that and provides um, a sense of relaxation and safety will be immune enhancing. TM is a great example of that. I came to Transcendental Meditation through a flyer that the San Francisco Foundation posted. I felt the serenity, the peace that I hadn't had before. The stress was slowly leaving me. And the more I did it, the less stress I felt. When I started meditating, my body began to fight back. I'm currently over 1,200 T-cells, and I feel great. Three months into me meditating consistently, twice a day, I went from having like 215 T-cells to 358, which is like 125 surge in like three months' time, which I had not had ever in my time uh, living with HIV. And the only thing that had changed in my life was the fact that I was meditating. And, and since I've been meditating, it's been consistently going up. When someone feels empowered, it also helps immune function. And so to have a technique in your own toolkit, like TM, that you can implement on your own is what we call self-empowering, and that's a huge piece. Who would have thought 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon was going to have such, such a profound effect of benefit in my life, you know? I used to walk with a cane. And since I started meditating, I no longer use a cane. I like walking, you know, and I, I walk fast. I don't, you know, I'm, you know, former New Yorker, man. You know, New York, if you stroll, you get trampled. I'm actually going to have a quinceanera for my HIV. I'm going to celebrate 15 years of being HIV positive. You can have a full, very rich life, even though you're HIV positive. It's no longer the death sentence that it used to be. I had some of my most stoic, always incredibly supportive mentors through the AIDS Foundation, and I wanted to emulate that for other people and be able to give back. And, and I started trying to reach people and teach them about HIV. Hi, Michael. <laughs> How you doing? We're great friends. We volunteer together. In the name of Hep C prevention and HIV, definitely. I, 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 maybe it's just being hyper, I don't want anybody here to feel that this is, you're being pushed for any particular meditation. I do want you to feel pushed to take the idea of meditation very seriously in your life and research it and look into different approaches. There should be an enormous amount of evidence to back it up. And I also recommend you find a teacher that just trying to learn something, we're going to do a little thing if we have time, but it's, it's just touching, it's just, meditation's far more substantive than just watching your breath or something. It's, we're, so I, I just want to make that, I'm very grateful to be able to be here and to talk about this and talk about the work that we're doing, but there's a lot of great work that's being done with mindful schools and a lot of other areas and, and I just make that point. Okay, so 
This is something which you've never done before. There's many different types of meditation. We, you know, you can do breath, and if you want to do something that you do on your own already, we're just going to take a couple minutes to do this. But this is um, <coughs> pulse with your pulse, and this is a 5,000-year-old meditation pulse practice, which I don't think anybody's is from Ayurveda. And you take your left hand, and you put your two middle fingers, wrap it around like this, on your pulse, like that. Yeah. And you go like that, and you just let your the fingers just rest on your pulse. And if you want, you can close your eyes, you can open your eyes, and what you're feeling is the information that's going through your body. And we're just going to do this for like two minutes or something like that. And it's just a connection between mind and body. That's nice. Now, some people do that if they're chronic eating dis problems, you know, they eat too much, do that for like a minute. People don't have to see you doing it. You know, it can be under the table. Um, it has a very calming effect. It was great. Um, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for being here tonight. We so appreciate it. I want to thank the wonderful Bob Roth, Executive Director of the David Litch Foundation for all the truly amazing work that you do. Bob Roth is a transcendental meditation teacher and runs the David Lynch Foundation. Perry Peltz is a documentary filmmaker and former broadcast journalist. Their conversation happened in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.